Would you please stay standing as I read the sermon text for this morning from Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus begins to teach his disciples about this kingdom of heaven. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he'd sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Sherry. Um, Obviously, we're in Matthew 5. You can turn there if you haven't yet. And I'm going to actually steal... uh, Matt Eldridge's opening that he uh, did with the youth group. I think it's helpful. So I'm going to show you some pictures on the screen, and uh, and then I'm going to ask you what you see. So we'll we'll start with uh, that first picture. I'll give you not that one, <laughs> uh, that. So I'll let you look at it for a second there, and um, we'll have you raise your hand if you see uh, a young woman. Okay, uh, raise your hand if you see an old woman. Yes, yes. So um, now raise your hand. Well, I'm a, I won't make you raise your hand. Try to see both. <laughs> Try to see each. I don't want to embarrass you if you can't. Now, at first I could only see the young woman, and, and now it's so hard for me to see the young woman. All I see is the old woman. We'll go, uh, we'll go to the next one here. Hopefully. There we go. So uh, raise your hand if you see two faces looking at each other nose to nose. Okay. And then raise your hand if what you see is one face looking like straight through the candle holder. Isn't that a trip that people can create that? That's amazing. So these are called ambiguous pictures. Um, uh, you first see a picture, and I think they, they try to get you to see a certain one of the two, but maybe not, maybe it's each. And, and, and then when you're told, or perhaps as you just look longer, you realize there's, there's multiple pictures. So i got two more here for you. Uh, next one. Okay, so uh, raise your hand if you see an old man, like a beard, long hair. Yeah, okay. Raise your hand if you see a guy on a white horse with a sombrero. And then I don't understand this guy on the side here that's like laying in, in a blanket. It's pretty weird to me. I'm not sure how that contributes to the picture, but that's there as well. Uh, okay, let's do our, our last one. Uh, okay, raise your hand if you see two old people look like they're maybe about to smooch. All right, and then raise your hand if what you see, again, we've got people in sombreros and one guy's playing a guitar, friends, friends listening. Isn't that amazing that, that someone can be creative enough to have that idea 
and then actually talented enough to pull it off. I, I, couldn't, I can't even draw stick figures well. So I, uh, all the artists in the house, I, I appreciate you. Uh, so why, why did I show you this? We, we see things one way. We see with worldly eyes. And even as believers in Christ, people that are, are already citizens of his kingdom, we're, we're skewed by worldly vision so often. And we need Jesus to help us see uh, what, is, what is real, what is true. Um, and Jesus is doing that here in the Sermon on the Mount, and certainly in, in the Beatitudes that the, the Sermon on the Mount starts with. He's giving us a vision for living in his kingdom, right? His kingdom is a total reversal uh, of this uh, of the worldly kingdom, right? It is, it is the opposite. We've called it the, the upside down kingdom, even though it's really the one that's right side up. Um, Jonathan Pennington, who uh, wrote a great commentary on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, he said this, these statements cast a vision, he's talking about the Beatitudes, for life that includes an implicit invitation. The Beatitudes are a description and commendations of the good life. As a prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world now and in the age to come. So with authority, Jesus is telling us how it is. He's telling us truth. He's, he's helping us to see what is truly real. Um, and he's inviting us to be his kingdom people. And his kingdom people will look different. Citizens of God's kingdom will look different. God's people were always to be distinct. Right? They're told that they were set apart, that they were different from the world because they were Yahweh's own people, that they were to be holy unto the Lord. Leviticus 18.1 and following says, As the Lord, uh, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. The prophet Jeremiah pled with the people, do not learn the ways of the nations. Uh, the Lord through Ezekiel, he said, do not defile yourselves with idols of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is also affirming and comforting us with the hope that we have, this future hope that his kingdom will fully come. And all of these things in the Beatitudes will, will, will come fully true. They'll, they'll come to total fruition. So what's he not doing here? Well, he's not giving us a list of how you get into the kingdom, right? These are not uh, entrance requirements for the kingdom. Uh, if you are a believer, uh, we should want all of these qualities and characteristics to grow in us. But this is not a, if I do these things, then I'm saved. Um, that would be an outer righteousness like we see in the Pharisees and the scribe, which Jesus is clearly, uh, he's clearly uh, uh, contrasting them. Uh, these, these beatitudes, they only come about by God producing them in each believer. And as, as we were in our uh, preaching meeting getting ready for this passage, um, we, we, we wanted to ask the question, 
and, and this is critical, this week and next week, we're going through half the Beatitudes this week. I want you to ask yourself, as you hear these Beatitudes, is this true of you, right? Is this, does this describe you? Is this who you are? Because these are qualities of citizens that are in the kingdom of God. As you look at the Beatitudes, um, my guess is most of your Bibles translate, have the word uh, blessed over and over again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Um, this is a really hard word in English to translate. There's no, there just is not a perfect word. Um, some translate it happy, which technically works, but because of that word in our culture, the connotations, what it means today, it's, it's a pretty watered-down word. We think of uh, happiness simply as an emotional state, which we know is fleeting, so there's some issues with using that word, though, though it, it, it has some good to it. Um, like I said, blessed is a word that, that is used by a ton of translations. Um, it's also pretty watered down in our culture. The, the word blessed is thrown out a lot. I almost jokingly uh, titled this sermon hashtag blessed, but I refrained. Um, uh, one word that, that a lot of people like is fortunate. Uh, Pastor Gary thinks this is, is a really helpful word here. Um, and, and it is, I think it is a, a good choice. It helps it describes the state that one is in. I think it helps connect that this is something that has happened to you, right? This is God doing this in you and, and, and making, uh, making you fortunate. So I think that, that can be a helpful word. Last week, I used the word uh, flourishing that, that I borrowed from uh, Jonathan uh, Pennington um, that I think is great for the sermon as a whole. And, it, and it's a word that, that I think it, it's, it's helpful in, in helping us see um, what, what Christ is describing here, the, the believer uh, living this, this, this life of flourishing in the kingdom. But it also, it also has some, uh, some drawbacks to it. All of these words have pluses and minuses. Um, so I'd encourage you to kind of keep all of those words in mind as we read this. Um, here's our truth statement for today. To the world, Jesus' followers appear unfortunate. However, Jesus declares that they are fortunate, for their misfortune will be reversed when God's kingdom comes in full. I'll read that one more time. To the world, Jesus' followers appear unfortunate. However, Jesus declares that they are fortunate, for their misfortune will be reversed when God's kingdom comes in full. Let's jump in. And, and I know I read five, and two, five, one, and two last week, but we'll start there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and, and we'll pause there. Mountains, uh, mountains are, are significant spiritually, not just to Christians. We, we see in the Old Testament the high places where, where gods were worshipped. Uh, so certainly in the ancient times, uh, mountains had this spiritual significance, but that's true even today. Uh, it's the, the high places where the gods are thought to, to, to speak and, and reveal. Uh, certainly in Israel's own history, Mountains were significant. We think of Mount Carmel, Mount, Mount Zion, Mount, uh, Mount Gilead, and especially we probably think of Mount Sinai as, as Moses ascends the mountain to meet with God to receive the law that he'll give to the people. 
Matthew, I, I believe, is making a connection here for us between Moses and Jesus. And I won't get into everything that Matthew does, but I'll just blitz off a, a, few, um, a few connections that he makes. Both Moses and Jesus have dreams connected to their births. Um, they were both, as, as babies, miraculously spared when all of these children were slaughtered. Um, both had to leave their own land and only to return when God told them it was safe to do so. There was temptation in the wilderness. There was 40 days and 40 nights of, of fasting, passing through uh, the, the river. Um, in, in the Old Testament, Moses is a critical figure. He's a, he's a great figure. And Matthew's presenting Jesus as the greater Moses that God's people were waiting for, that God's people needed. Moses went up the mountain and he was both the, the lawgiver to God's people and he was also their redeemer. And now Jesus will perfectly fulfill that role for, for all who place their trust in him. Isaiah 2, 3 says this, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Right? That's, that's what's happening here. Jesus is teaching God's people his ways. The entire sermon, beginning with the Beatitudes, is this invitation to live their faith in God's kingdom. Now, there's some arguments about how many Beatitudes are there. Are there eight or are there none? And there's great arguments both ways. Um, as you read them, you can see that it starts off, blessed are those, blessed are the, and then it switches. It switches and says, um, blessed are you when others revile you, and, and, and goes on. So there's arguments. Is it eight? Is it nine? Either way, these are not eight or nine categories of, of Christians or, or types of Christians. These are qualities of the same group of God's people. So Jesus is telling his people that this is the ideal for every citizen, right? Not, not just elite super Christian, but every citizen. This is, how, this is how you live. This is what you should look like. So this isn't like spiritual gifts um, where, where God gifts Every believer, as he sees fit in his wisdom with, with different gifts to edify the church, the Beatitudes describe all believers. Uh, we don't simply long to grow in one or two of these, but as one pastor put it, we covet them all. Uh, John Stott said these qualities describe our responsibilities as citizens, and the blessings with each describe the privileges. So each blessing is displayed is, is uh, bestowed by God. It's his gracious gift to each person he is working in. You'll notice that each of the Beatitudes, um, when you read it the, the first time, probably the first several times, maybe still, it makes you scratch your head. Right, right? These things do not sound good. None of them really sound desirable except for the pure in heart. But again, Jesus is giving us a vision. He's helping us to see his kingdom as it really is. Uh, Pennington said, the Beatitudes offer a redefinition of who the people of God are. Right? This is how citizens of his upside-down kingdom live, and it's an invitation to live with him in this upside-down kingdom. You'll also notice that Jesus lives out all of these perfectly, right? saying that he embodies them. I, I wonder if that's strong enough language. Um, and it reminds us that it's, it's our union with Christ 
the blessed one that, that we're able to receive grace and live in these. So let's start. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and again, I just said this, but I want to make sure it's clear. That these are ideals. These are characteristics, qualities of every believer. Not, not just super elite Christian, which isn't even a thing. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you did try to make this into a spiritual checklist, um, you would pretty quickly, I hope, realize how woefully we fall short of, of the Beatitudes of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The demands of the Sermon on the Mount are, are brutal, and they're meant to make it crystal clear that we're a sinful mess. We're in desperate need of God. And, and we see that in this first beatitude, that it's spiritual poverty that, that turns our, our heart that's rebellious against God, that, that turns it to, to faith in God, to, to seeing that we need God to save us. The standard of the Sermon on the Mount is so impossibly high that it, it pushes us into a, a desperation to, to be saved, to be redeemed by God's grace. And it is, it is, it's a total grace gift. It is not grace after all you can do. It, it is, I can do nothing. I need God's grace to save me. And there's a, a phrase um, that I've heard more and more. I don't know how many years it's been now, but it's, it's pretty popular in our culture. And I actually think it's, it's really anti-gospel, although it doesn't, may not seem that way at first. The, the phrase is, you are enough. And uh, I can understand why someone would say that. Maybe we've even said that to a friend, hoping to be an encouragement to them. Uh, but when we think about it, when we, when we look at the gospel, I don't think that phrase stands. Uh, you never heard Jesus say, you are enough, right? He, he didn't say, you're enough, that's why I came to die for you. That, that, that literally just doesn't even make sense. You're enough sounds good. We want to be enough. Uh, it feels good, but it isn't true. Right? Everything in me, everything that I have, that I've done, that, that I try, don't add up to enough. If I were a bank account, I would be overdrawn by a ton. Uh, if I were working out at the gym uh, on, on the bench, trying to do a bench press, I'd be the guy screaming because the bar is on my chest and I need help because I can't do it. Right? There's a big problem when we believe that we're enough and we aren't. We spin our wheels trying to live up to this thing that we aren't and it's exhausting. The truth is I'm not enough as a husband. I'm not enough as a dad, I'm not enough as a son or a brother or a neighbor. I'm not enough as a pastor. The poor in spirit stops trying to be enough and they turn to the one, the only one who is enough. So is this true of you? Are you poor in spirit? Do you see that you have a need for God? Is there a desperation in you for God? Or do you think you're enough? Right? Do, you, do you think that you can figure it out on your own, that, that your way of going through this world is working out for you? Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So we've got to ask ourselves, what, what kind of mourning are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, someone who's lost 
a loved one, because uh, we certainly, we want those people to be comforted. And I do think that there is scripture that, that we can go to that, that, that encourages uh, people that are hurting, that, that have lost someone, that God is present with him, that, that, that uh, God is near the brokenhearted. But this beatitude, I'm not convinced that it's, it's talking about that. Will, will the grieving family be comforted in this life? Yes. Right? And will they be fully comforted in the next? No doubt. But it seems to me that that misses the, the theme of, uh, of especially the first four Beatitudes. It seems more likely that, that this mourning has a, a very direct connection to the poor in spirit. That the disciple of Jesus mourns over sin. That we mourn over the darkness that we see in ourselves. That we mourn over temptations uh, that we give into, thinking that, that we'd already gotten past these, that we mourn over our selfishness. We, we mourn over the way we treat others. We mourn over our arrogance. We, we mourn over any number of things that, that we, we put in place of, of Christ. So we, we certainly mourn over our own sin. The disciple of Jesus recognizes that there is this constant battle uh, with the flesh, this side of Christ's return. Sin, sin doesn't rule the Christ follower any longer, but there is still a war being waged. So are we broken over our sin? When was the last time you were grieved over your sin? We also mourn over our broken, messed up world. We look around and we mourn over injustices. We, we should mourn over people being mistreated or taken advantage of uh, or, or, or vulnerable people that are being abused. I think of human trafficking. I think of sexual abuse. I think of unborn babies never, never getting the opportunity to live. Um, we mourn, we mourn racism, right? That's been brought to the forefront for almost a whole year now. And, and there are ways that haven't been helpful that it's been spoken about, certainly, but there are ways that have been helpful. Um, I, I mean, I've said this before, I have a massive problem with us pinning everything on law enforcement. Like, what really needs to happen is we need to all look at ourselves and see, see how racism, which has been around forever, is is alive and active and how we contribute to it. We need to look at all, all sectors of life, but we, we mourn that, that all of these sins are in our world and, and have this grip on our world. Uh, we mourn this week, as, as Sherry uh, referenced this uh, earlier, um, and I'm still processing what happened this week. Um, there were many disturbing images on Wednesday Never did I think that, uh, that our capital would, would be stormed. I just, that wasn't even the realm of possibility. Um, I don't know why I watched it, but I, I watched a video um, uh, in, the, in, in the building as they were trying to break into uh, the lobby, and, and I watched the woman uh, get shot, and it's horrible. I mean, I, I understand why she was shot, but the whole, the whole scene was terrible. Our, our world is broken by sin, and we should mourn over what we see. Um, I think even more disturbing for me was uh, like the Jesus flags and banners that, that I saw waved around. Um, 
that, that, that Jesus, I think, was, was being equated or, or tagged onto a, a political candidate. Obviously, in this case, it's Trump, but it could be any candidate. And, and I, I have no issue with being passionate about politics. Like, politics are necessary, right? Like, most of us actually should probably be more involved in, than we are, some maybe too much. Um, but, but my issue is, is, is this mixing of, uh, of Christianity with, uh, w- with nationalism, with, with this, this worship of, of America. And I, I just, I'm just asking myself, like, where is our hope? And not to mention, like, how embarrassed I am. Like, people already think wrongly of Christians. And I, I just don't think any of, any of those flags being waved or those banners helped anything. So we, we just mourn. We mourn over our sin. We mourn over the sin of our world. We mourn that, that, that people that we know and love just continue to reject Christ. And, and Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So when will that comfort come? Will it happen in this life? Like it, 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 it is good. It makes sense for us to want that in this life. And to some degree, that comfort we know does come in this life. But our ultimate comfort will come when Christ returns, when, when he makes everything new. And I hope that as you've been reading the Beatitudes this last week, that, that your brain is, has uh, been making connections to the sermon that Matt Q preached a couple weeks ago in Revelation 21 and 22. There's, there's all kinds of connections, but here's one for you. Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We, we will be comforted. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And I think meek is a word that I doubt many of us use it maybe ever. It's, it's, a, it's a word we all know, but in some ways are unfamiliar with. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, um, he emphasizes, and I think it's really helpful, that this meekness denotes a humble and gentle attitude towards others, which is determined by a true estimation of ourselves. Um, th- this word, it can be translated gentle. It's, it's only used, I think, just four times in the New Testament. Um, Matthew uses it in 1129, and when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, First Peter uses it when speaking about godly women being, being gentle. Um, and then Matthew uses it again, uh, quoting from Zechariah in Matthew 21.5. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So we, um, we probably, most of us, or maybe all of us, appreciate when we meet someone who's meek or maybe humble or gentle might be a, a more helpful way to think about it. Um, maybe we like having a, a boss that's, that's humble, um, but we so often can think of humility and meekness, gentleness as weakness. Um, in our society, we don't exactly picture the, uh, the humble person excelling or climbing the ladder, so to speak. We have a saying that nice guys finish last. In, uh, in the kingdom of this world, but not in Christ's kingdom. Christ says, the meek inherit the earth. And Jesus seems to be quoting Psalm 37, verse 11. 
but the meek shall inherit the land, which, which makes me think of the promised land. It makes me think of, obviously, the, the, the land to come, the, the new heavens and new earth that, that will come about. Um, in this life, meekness, humility, gentleness, they may not get you ahead. Right? You might get passed up for opportunities or, or promotions, uh, but in Christ's kingdom, meek inherit everything. As Paul puts it, having nothing yet possessing everything. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Having a hunger and a thirst for righteousness is a perpetual characteristic of the Christ follower. And that's, that's true with all of these, that these are, are perpetual. We're perpetually poor in spirit. We're perpetually meek, perpetually mourning. Our hunger and thirst will continue until God's kingdom is consummated. And then our hunger and thirst will be satisfied. Now we have moments of satisfying this, this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Just like when we eat a, a meal, when we come to a meal and we eat enough, we're full and we're satisfied. Maybe for several hours, but eventually our hunger returns Many have noted the, the relationship in the first four Beatitudes here, beginning with poor in spirit, recognizing that we're, we're, we're bankrupt spiritually, that we bring nothing to the table besides what God has given us, seeing their desperate need for God as their Savior. And that, they, that we mourn over, uh, over sin, both ours and, and the sin uh, that has marred all of creation, mourning that sin and death has a hold on the world in in. Uh, it presently. Thirdly, we, uh, that, that we're to be humble and meek, as John Stott puts it, that, that we allow spiritual poverty to condition our behavior towards God and others. And lastly, citizens of the kingdom have this never satisfied hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it makes sense that recognition of, of our great need for God, that lamenting over sin, that rightly seeing how we relate with God and with others, that it would lead us to this longing for righteousness. And again, Stott, write, Stott's, um, writes, confession must lead to a hunger for righteousness. So is that, is that you? Are you hungry for righteousness. I wonder what are you doing to develop that hunger and that thirst for righteousness? And, and yes, this is something that God brings about, and, and yet we're not called to just sit on our behinds and, and not, not participate with him, not partner with him. So what are you do, doing to develop a hunger and thirst for righteousness? I, I heard multiple people um, tell me that the wisdom pyramid graphic that, that I shared last week um, was, was really helpful. I, I don't know if we have, yeah, there's the slide for that. And there's printouts on the back there too, but, but just helpful for, for them to look and go, man, of all the stuff I take in all week and, and thinking about man, what is discipling me, this, this pyramid I think is really helpful and showing us like, yeah, look at the foundation. It's, it's God's word. Look, look at how critical it is to, to be a part of the church, not just coming on Sundays, but truly in the life of the church. And you can keep going up that. So I wonder, I wonder this week, did it change anything for you? Because otherwise it was just a cool graphic. But, but did, it, did it make any change in you? Did, you? did you spend more time 
just saturating your, your mind and your heart in God's word this week and, and what he reveals to you through his word. You meditate on God's word. Um, I had a couple friends that uh, decided, hey, we should try to memorize a giant chunk of scripture together. And uh, we're going for it. I don't know if we'll be successful, but we're, we're going for it. Um, and it's been so good already. We're just 10 days in. And, and man, this last week, I just spent so much time with God's word rolling around my brain and my heart. Maybe, maybe more time in a given week than, than I have in, in, I don't know, decades possibly. But do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What are you doing to increase your hunger and your thirst? As I mentioned earlier, Jesus, he is the blessed one. All these blessed are the blessed are the, these, this is Jesus. He's the one who lives all of these perfectly. Pennington, uh, he wrote that in antiquity, the ideal king was to embody the law internally and to produce good legislation that transforms the people and leads them in obedience to the law. For the Greeks, the ideal king is the virtuous one who imitates the gods, becoming a living law which then produces harmony for his subjects. And then later he goes on to say that these themes of virtue, uh, speaking of the Beatitudes, leading to human flourishing and the kingdom of God are mutually informing and deeply related. In the sermon, we meet a person who is simultaneously the fulfillment and the incarnation of both. He is the complete and victorious human and the true king. Jesus lives all of these out perfectly. And and he is our model for this, that that in unity with Christ, that that we can live by his power as as citizens of his kingdom, right? Not our own doing. We're incapable of that. It's by his gracious invitation and and his righteousness that, that is given to us. Jesus truly is the blessed one. He embodies all of this. Matthew works really hard to show us that that Jesus is is the model that we need. And and there's an invitation here in the Beatitudes. Jesus is the meek one. He's poor in spirit. He mourns over sin. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is the one who is pure in heart. He defines mercy for us. He's the ultimate peacemaker And as we'll see next week, he's been willing to suffer the greatest injustice the universe has ever known. So this blessing, this this fortune, this flourishing, it's only found in Christ. The only reason that we are blessed or fortunate is because we are in him. We are hidden in Christ. The Beatitudes are a grace-based invitation into flourishing. It's an invitation and a comfort to those who are in the kingdom. It's a promise of flourishing now and forever in the kingdom for all who trust in the blessed one, Jesus the Christ. And, and if, you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I just want you to know he's inviting you too. He's inviting you to live the life that, that he created for you, not, not just now, but, but forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we love you. God, I love I love your word. I'm, I'm growing more and more each year to uh, appreciate um, what you have given us in uh, your word. And God, I thank you for the, the Sermon on the Mount. I thank you for the Beatitudes. And Lord, I, I pray that, um, 
that you would transform us through your word, God, that there, there would be uh, uh, a notable change in us, not because we're trying really hard, but, but by your spirit leading us, changing us, growing us, God, that we would, we would live more and more like your kingdom people. Jesus, we want to be a people that, that bring you glory, a people that, that, that do look different, right? Not because not we're some weirdo group, but, but people that, that, that look like you, Jesus. And I pray that, that as, as we read these Beatitudes, as we hear this invitation, that we would, we would just long to come and, and live in your kingdom as your people. It's in your name we pray, amen.